0: So last week, Bethan took us into um, the the story of the book of Philemon, and I'm not going to go back into it just to say this, that Paul is writing uh, from a Roman prison to a man he has led to the Lord in a city called Colossae, and he is sending to him his runaway slave named Onesimus. So Philemon receives this letter, but he receives this letter at the same time as the church in Colossae receives a letter. So these two letters are both going to be read out loud in public. So you interpret both letters. You cannot do a study of the book of Colossians without doing a study of the book of Philemon because there's a whole lot of stuff in there including use of terms like redemption and a whole lot of theology in there. That people know exactly the context. You know, we don't always have the privilege of knowing the personal context in which the theology is being expressed. Colossians is very deliberately a letter that accompany, had accompanying this letter to the book of Philippians. Now we're not doing a study of uh, Colossians, but we are having to remember Colossians as we unpack the book of Philippians. I mean, sorry, Philemon, what I was mentioning. So we're going to dive straight in. And as we go through uh, the actual appeal, so we did the introduction and looked at the story last week. This week, we're gonna look at Paul's part of the story. Next week, Bevan's gonna take us through Onesimus's experience of the story. What was it like to be Onesimus? What were the struggles he would have had? And the following week, we're gonna look at what were the struggles that. Philemon would have had. How would he have had to wrestle with the obligations of the gospel? But Paul places upon himself an obligation of the gospel. He apparently is neutral. He's not involved in this conflict, as it were, or this tension, or this problem that has erupted in the life, apparently the domestic life, of a house church in Colossae. Paul will involve himself, because the obligations of the gospel fall to him. So we're going to look at, this morning, the obligations of the gospel in the study of Philemon through the eyes of Paul. First thing I want to say is that Paul's ethics and Paul's response are collective, but they're free from coercion. So, in verse 8, he writes in his own hand, To Philemon, and he says to him, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, deeply personal, (laughs) an old man. And now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. That I appeal to you. For my son. Onesimus. Who became my son. While I was in chains. Bevan explained. And we're not sure exactly how it happened. But that Onesimus had made contact with Paul. In that Roman prison situation. Possibly house arrest. And had been led to faith by Paul's ministry and witness. And so Paul calls him his son. Paul lays it on thick. (laughs) But yet, his ethics are without coercion. They're not without pressure, but they're without coercion. Philemon will feel intense pressure, and you can't miss it. But it's a good pressure. The gospel creates pressure. The gospel creates obligations. Someone's preaching to you a gospel that has no obligation and no expectation. It's not the gospel. So remember this. This is an open letter. Paul is not just writing an appeal. Of course he's making an appeal. But it's also a statement. It's a statement of what the gospel looks like and achieves between people and its consequence. And of course, we have to look at the main letter that um, accompanies this one. And in the sense from Colossians being the larger letter, overshadows this one. As much as Philemon, the, the letter, overshadows Colossians. Philemon leads a house church in Colossae, probably one of several in the city. His letter to the city churches is going to be read in the lead up to this one. So they're going to read Colossians and read Philemon. And this is what we read Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self. There's an old self you want to get rid of with its practices. And you have put on a new self which is being renewed In knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. You see, Philemon did not get to keep the obligations and implications of the gospel private. Sure, he was a leader in the church. Paul respected that. Paul loved him deeply. Paul prayed for him and honored him. But the application of the gospel is not something that he got to keep private. The gospel and its obligations are a communal matter. Why? Because the relationships on earth are the true testing ground of our faith. James tells us that if we claim to love God whom we can't see, I mean, sorry, we, we, we don't love our brothers and sisters who we can see, how on earth can our claim to love God whom we can't see have any veracity, any credibility? And so our relationships are the testing ground. Of the gospel, and our relationships declare and witness to what God has done. And so, there's a convenient modern myth that ethics can be merely matters of personal conscience. Now, of course, your, Paul is very careful in the way he constructs his letter to respect conscience, <laughs> but to appeal to your conscience so as to avoid wrestling with the obligations of the gospel is nonsense. Your conscience must be tested by something much greater than you. And that is God's word. And that is God's gospel. And so Paul refuses to just give an apostolic command. Because he is wanting to awaken inside Philemon a decision. You see, he knows he could end up with something far worse than disobedience. What could be worse than Philemon? You know, giving him bat. You know, it would it would cause chaos in the local church, of course. It could cause what would be worse if he just made an order and Philemon complied with it, but did not love Onesimus as his own brother. In other words, external compliance without breaking the power inside of himself. In which he saw himself as the master and owner of another human being. That would be far worse. And so he wants (laughs) to get inside Philemon. He loves Philemon too much to force him. But he loves him too much to ignore the issue. Because the gospel has obligations. So this love leaves us to the next point. Paul's motivation is love, you know when we look at the power divide, the economic divide, whatever divide there is around us, can we honestly say on both sides for example, of power and wealth that we deeply love both in in, Paul, in verse seven, Paul describes Philemon as you know giving him the love that he has for him gives him great joy, and so he says i I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. But there's a love not just for Philemon, there's a love for Onesimus. And so verse 11 and 12, he now takes us into this and describes the value-creating love of God. That a man who is seen as previously (laughs) without use... Without profit, Onesimus means useful, profitable. Now, if you think of a slave called profitable, <laughs> there's a certain connotation. Wasn't he? He was just an economic unit. It was even in his name. But because of a fallen relationship with his master. He had become unprofitable. He would become useless. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you. But now he has become so useful to you. How can he be useful to him? He's not even there. Because he's going to be part of changing your life. Taking the gospel to a new level of understanding and application. I'm useful to you, and oh, he's useful to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart. This word means, he's my guts. English, it's, it's accurately translated, because that's how we use the word heart. But, but in the Greek, and especially you know, from biblical times, it was from your innermost being, your swanghna. <laughs> Say that, and then watch the audience just in front of you. But it kind of took you from the gut. He is my darms. I love him. I love him. I would have liked to keep him with me. So that, you, so that he could take your place in helping me. While I'm in chains for the gospel. But notice this pressure without coercion. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. So that any favor you do, he's asking for favor, would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. So Bevan has to explore next week how in the name of love Paul could send a man back into slavery. Ask him, and he does. Good luck, Ben. <laughs> but I was reading an African theologian called Soro So Ungalu, who notes what love means for Paul in this situation. Paul asks his friend, quote, to do two difficult things, to pardon his runaway slave despite the seriousness of his crime. And to accept him from now on as his brother in Christ. And what the apostle asks Philemon to do is absolutely revolutionary in his time. Is what this author says. And then he says this. His request goes far beyond merely, mere legal freeing of a slave. And is and becomes in fact a real test. Philemon's heart is being exposed by his response to Onesimus. Now there's no hint that the early church was trying to lobby the rulers and the principalities. (laughs) And these words are important when we go back to Colossians. The early church believed that their high-risk love was far more powerful than trying to change the laws around slavery. They believed they would change the empire. (laughs) They believed they would shift the powers and principalities that governed and controlled men. But they did not believe (laughs) that they were going to do so using the tools that Rome was familiar with. he easily resort to forcing change by whatever means. Paul believes love will surpass the law. And he believes that what it will achieve in this situation is so much better. And so he is prepared to test Philemon at great potential cost to Onesimus. And that's why he makes it so clear. You'll put a spear through my heart if you don't do what I'm asking of you. Paul's arguing in the text from both creation and redemption. The fact that. We read this in verse 15. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave. Some commentators believe Paul's not asking him to set him free. I defy you to read this. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear slave. Brother, as a precious brother, as a loved br- brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man, the text there is both in his flesh. Just the fact that he's got skin and bone like you, you should care for this man. But how much more, now that he is your brother in the Lord? both from creation and redemption. You, it doesn't, you know. Some people say we should look after Christians. Of course we should. <laughs> but we don't have to care for those who are not yet in the family of faith. Scripture says that our ethics and our obligations extend to everybody who has flesh. And to those who are in Christ. You've got a double imperative. You have the same creator. But you also have the same heavenly father. He's your brother. You have the same savior. And Paul makes this clear. You even have the same earthly, spiritual father. I am father to both of you. So back to Colossians chapter 3, which we read earlier. Put on the new self. <laughs> Renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. The image, the knowledge. You've got to get inside your head that you're made in the image of God. <laughs> the knowledge of the image. There's a movie called The Free State of Jones. And, ex- and it explores some of the history of the resistance within the confederacy, which was the side that fought for slavery to remain in place in the 1850 Civil War in the uh, uh, North Americas. And so the confederates were going around and they were commandeering, basically just stealing, their own people's corn, their own people's livestock In order to feed their armies. And so their people began to rebel against the oppression of their own army. And of course, slaves themselves were being forced to work in the cornfields. So that their white masters could go and fight. To keep them as slaves. And so they began to rebel. But what started to happen is that some of the white people of the south... Their consciences got hold of them, and they joined the resistance to the confederacy, and that's what this movie's about. Does that set the scene for you? So in one definitive scene in the movie, the resistance leader, who now happens to be a white man, who has married a person of color and a slave, Well, he hasn't married because he wasn't allowed to, but he's taken her as his wife in the eyes of God asks a dignified African-American man why he is not, quote, in the language of the day, a nigger and a slave. And this man's solemn and dignified reply, staring straight ahead, is this. Sorry. You cannot own a child of God. You cannot own a child of God. So Paul argues for Onesimus' value and worth. But Paul does more than argue. Paul does more than appeal. The obligations of the gospel are immense. Paul offers to pay the price. Paul is no armchair activist. He's not just another angry voice demanding that someone else change their life so that his world can be a better place. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it To me, I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention. But I'll say it in any case. You owe me your very self. Your soul. I do wish, brother... I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Reset, refresh my heart in Christ. Remember, and this is important, as Bevan explained last week, in Roman times, if a man incurred a debt he could not pay, he would often have to sell himself into slavery. And so Paul puts in writing, which had legal force with his own hand, Written and read in the presence of many witnesses. His commitment to carry the cost. No matter the consequence. Even if it meant that he would have to take Onesimus' place. That's the logic. The legal logic of this place. Paul's saying. Credit it to my account. Charge it to me. I will pay it back. This man who is worthless to you is worth everything to me. And the obligations of the gospel are such that I cannot sit back. And if the price is too much, that would be the implication. Now, there are commentators who dismiss this interpretation. Partly because Paul is already prisoner. It's a meaningless offer they saying, Why could he do that? No, no, no. In those days, you know, you came out of prison and you had another obligation. You'd be dragged off to the other obligation. But many commentators dismiss it because simply it would be absolutely unthinkable for Philemon to enslave his spiritual father. And that is exactly Paul's logic. If you can have your own brother as your slave, then why not your father? Make me your slave. I will pay it. I will be liable. Charge it to my account. The obligations on Paul to make peace between two of his brothers sees himself make this extraordinary offer. Why would Paul offer in the presence of witnesses, in his own handwriting, to become a legal substitute? Because Paul serves Jesus Christ, who in see, seeing us enslaved to sin and lost in a broken world, came to redeem us. Jesus has paid the legal price to redeem those who were slaves. And so we read in Colossians, by the way, we read in chapter 1, and we saw it in the prayer meeting this morning, that we have in Jesus the redemption. We've been rescued from the dominion, the control, the enslavery of darkness, and brought into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's what you paid, a redemption price, when you set a slave free. Read Colossians in the light of Philemon. Paul is laying on theology thick, not in the the stratosphere of nothing. He wants him to be clear on the obligations of the gospel. And then he says this, Colossians 2 verse 13, Jesus forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. There were different ways in which things were enacted in that time. Often a law, for example, was promulgated in the act of proclamation. But often a legal deed, especially a financial one, if there'd been a verdict, it would be taken and it would be nailed to the door of the business. And the place where Jesus did the business of redemption on the cross and the deed of our redemption is nailed there and the powers and the principalities are disarmed by the action of Jesus on the cross and he has triumphed over them you see Paul knows that Evil can easily survive the grievance of the offended and the angry. But evil has no power against those who will live by the grace and the Spirit and the love of Jesus. Oppression says to the oppressed. You are inferior and despised. You have little value. You deserve your lot. I own you. I control you. That is the power and the authority that operates over their lives. (laughs) Anger and activism comes to the oppressor and says, You are arrogant and despised. And you are going to pay. I will oppose and overthrow you. Paul comes in a completely different spirit, the spirit of Jesus, and says both to the oppressor and to the oppressed, you are loved. Charge it to my account. I will pay the price. Paul intends in making this offer to set both Onesimus and Philemon free. Obligations of the gospel don't give us a neutral spectator seat in the face of injustice. Paul does not merely issue a command, he makes an appeal. He does not merely make an appeal, but he shows him why it matters. And why it matters is because of the value of another human being. But Paul's recognition of that value is like that of his master, Jesus Christ. And he is willing, as did Jesus, to pay a price so that another man can go free. What have we made of the gospel? What obligations does it place upon us? You see, Paul is just so thrilled that the gospel is going to surpass the law. And so, this section of the appeal from Paul he says, confident of your obedience, I write this to you, knowing you'll do more than I ask. I know you. I know what the gospel has awakened inside of you. And know you hadn't thought of the fullness of the implications. Because you've been living as a citizen of Rome. But now you're under a new power. You're under a new authority. And the old power has had its power broken on the cross.